For the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schack. Religion, theology, meaning-making for the 21st century. Today, we'll tackle Christian atheism, the future of theology, religion, and value. My guest is David Gulston. He's a university chaplain and adjunct professor of philosophy at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. David was on Progressive Spirit about three years ago. We discussed his book, Embracing the Human Jesus, A Wisdom Path for Contemporary Christianity. Today, we're discussing his newly released book, God's Human Future, The Struggle to Define Theology Today via Skype from Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome back, David, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. It's really nice to be back again. In the introduction to your book, you write uh, this, every time the world changes, God changes. And when an old world stops working, so does God. It's, it's hard to talk about the future of theology if the conversation does not include recognizing why the old idea of God in heaven no longer works. Uh, theology used to be the queen of the sciences in the Middle Ages. Now it's kind of reduced to a somewhat quaint, esoteric discipline uh, in seminaries and whatnot. Um, so as the God of the Middle Ages kind of faded away, so did the discipline that talked about God. So, in fact, I don't know how many secular uh, universities that even have a theology department. Instead, as you point out, universities have religious studies departments. So my question is this, David, uh, what's the state of theology today, and, and what's the trajectory of, of possibility that you see for it? That's a very hard question to answer. There are, I have always two sides personally to the question, because one side of me says it just really does not have a future. Um, it can be studied adequately as anthropology, really, and cultural history. But the other side of me is the artist that believes that theology is probably the most widely practiced form of art on the planet. Uh, it still gathers people into a community it still is able to raise at a popular level questions about life and the meaning of life. It can still help us mature as human beings, learning about love and forgiveness and integrity and recognizing others. And it can still inspire us to change ourselves. So on the poetic side, uh, theology is very important because it can certainly be a window that opens up history and allows us to understand where we're coming from. And you mentioned the Middle Ages, how important it is to, to understanding the Middle Ages. But it is also the vision of the future of ourselves. And if we can learn to take religion and theology uh, poetically or metaphorically, it could still have value for us in the future. The trouble is that we look around the world, we take it so literally and so seriously that sometimes I feel it's not worth it, and we should uh, turn the page. Theology keeps wanting to be science, <laughs> and kind of be yeah. obnoxious that way. Uh, you know, creationism and in more extreme forms, but, e but even uh, in its more liberal forms, it's wanted to define the universe in such a way that it has meaning, that the universe has a purpose, and, and so forth. But uh, uh, as science... Um, seems to come up with observations about cosmology and evolution and deep time. They make the idea of an objective 
purposeful uh, fixed existence, not so credible. And, and so the idea of theology of art um, is, is really then uh, the human project about the courage to say yes in the face of um, a universe that perhaps is purposeless, objectively. Yes, I, I certainly agree with that. And one of the points I tried to make in that book is to talk about open theology as a non-apocalyptic form of theology. I think that in the West, historically, certainly with Christianity and Judaism, the predominant form has been apocalyptic, that the universe is purpose-driven, aimed at a conclusion. There's a grand finale at the end, a cleanup project, if you like. Um, I think that if there's a future to religion and a future to theology, it, it certainly has to not have an apocalypse anymore. It has to be more about living life now and about imagining the best ways we can to be human beings. We can get a lot of help by uh, world religions in that way because all religions around the world are have many different variations and several are not apocalyptic. And even within the tradition of Christianity and Judaism, there are these streams of wisdom that are non-apocalyptic as well. So I still think there's value to it. It's, it's just that we want it to do more than it can do. We want it to explain the universe. And that's really, at some point, we have to start admitting that that can't really be the purpose of religion. The hardest thing in some respects of all of this conversation is to define the terms. Uh, when I had philosopher uh, and atheist Daniel Dennett on the show, he defined religion from his book Breaking the Spell as, quote, social systems whose participants avow a belief in a supernatural agent or agents whose approval is to be sought. Uh, that's how he defined uh, religion. So what's right. different uh, in your understanding of religion or what could be? Well, I think that definition of religion describes the Middle Ages probably. Um, but it, one of the things that uh, atheists, if I can use that word, do not recognize is that there are actually intelligent people who are involved in religion, who understand science as good as most people do, as well as most people do, um, and who are looking for something else. And I think, again, it's this, they're looking for the poetic, they're looking for the artistic. They're not trying to explain uh, morality based on believing in something invisible. One of the, the terms that we can use in Christianity that you know very well is Christian atheism. A lot of people say they're non-theist or post-theistic, but there's a really good word, Christian atheist. And it means somebody who has really given up on that worldview that uh, Professor Dennett is talking about and, and that understanding of religion and is beginning to look at religion with the question of its value. Does it still have a value for humanity? And this is a new question, because it's not a question that's trying to explain the world or how the world works or trying to suggest what one should believe or not believe. It's very much a life-centered form of religion, and it doesn't require a confession in invisible beings, so to speak. Uh, it requires, um, requires positing oneself in life and thinking about being human and the fullness of being human. 
David Gulston is my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the author of a new book, God's Human Future, The Struggle to Define Theology Today. You, you mentioned that theology is often wanted to take off too, too big of a bite. Uh, it should be smaller, thinking of about uh, the poetics of, of living life. And that would include, for example, its resources uh, in Christianity or, or monotheisms theisms in general, uh, like sacred books or the Bible which uh, at one time was used to really explain the whole meaning of the cosmos. And uh, it also had its authority because it was uh, a revelation from God, a divine being. Now we see the, the Bible as, as a human creation. So that, as well as religion and even God itself, if, if all of these things are human creations and we consciously recognize that, how do we relate to them anymore? Do they lose their zing, it seems. Do they, do they lose their zing completely? Um, well, I don't think they lose their zing completely. They lose their sing, zing, sorry, certainly as an explanation. In the Middle Ages, the Bible was an explanation, and Christianity, particularly in the West, was a cosmic explanation. Uh, it did very well uh, to explain the order of the universe. It did very well to explain the origins of language. It really explained why certain phenomena had the shapes that they had. So, in that sense, it used to work. But science exposed the fact that we do not need to add on to nature another layer of metaphysics that we can emerge out of nature with the kinds of explanations or models that we, that we need. So in this sense, religion can no longer be what it used to be. That's why we have to move a different direction with it if we feel it still has a value. And the only way I see forward at the present time is to recognize that it still holds great metaphors about life. So you look at parables. It still holds inspiring heroic stories. It still holds our cultural memory. It still tells us where we came from. It still has this role for us that helps us become or achieve some sense of fullness or dignity in our humanity. If religion internationally was more about human dignity about openness to the future, about the value of life, and about the metaphor, the creativity of life, the creativity of finding value in life, in a universe that leaves us completely anonymous, if religion were about that, it would indeed promote peace and tolerance, and we'd have a very different world. In some ways, in some forms of it, it, it does that already, even though people perhaps haven't articulated it as such. I, I, I think of the perhaps just the congregations I've served. I, I don't know how many people really care that much about all the theology and creeds. Maybe some do, but I, I find we they kind of are, are happy to be in, in these communities in, in spite of all of that theological language of the past, that they really are engaged in trying to find um, uh, meaning and, and uh, relationships and, uh, for the present. And, and I wonder if it weren't for the possibility of organizations like that, uh, wh where would we in society be able to think uh, critically about uh, what the world can be and what we can be? 
Mm -hmm. In many ways, that the birth of Christianity in the context of the Roman Empire was about these small communities emerging that were welcoming and that expressed solidarity and uh, developed networks of care. So there is some of that in the history of any religion. And I also find, in my experience, that people still value, especially in this technical age, physical community, often small communities, where they can come together in honesty and discuss questions about life and how to live. The other element is that such communities also help us learn about ourselves, because when you talk to others or explain to someone else where you're coming from or what you believe, you inevitably learn more about yourself than you, than you actually know, because you practically test yourself when you try to explain yourself. Anybody who's been a teacher, I'm sure, have, would say that they always learn more in the act of teaching than as a student, because in the act of teaching, you the encounter with the student is actually a very significant learning experience. Uh, communities gives us, give us the opportunities to create our own humanity, which is difficult to do in isolation. You talk about uh, the difference throughout your book uh, between Enlightenment and Covenant theologies. Can you describe those two uh, approaches? Yes. Um, these, these models came out of some uh, lectures I had the opportunity to give in several different instances, so I kept recreating the words. But generally speaking, I related Enlightenment to the history of Europe and to the Indo-European tradition going right back into uh, Hinduism, the emergence of Hinduism, and the idea of the avatar that you, and you have this in Buddhism too, the idea that you yourself, you have to in some way realize the divine within yourself. You have to realize the Buddha nature, or you have to realize this, the, the sound of the universe, if you like, the vibration of the universe coming out from within you and of which you are a part of. So, and then I looked at the biblical tradition and I realized that the ancient Near East, you kind of had this mixture going on, like a soup of sort of Indo-European influence and the ancient Near Eastern influence. And in the Bible, you can see these instances of the Torah really being, in the end, not about the words out there, but about how you live your life, how you realize the Torah within yourself and how the prophets ingest the Torah to speak it and to live it. So there's that. So I ended up calling this tradition that I think is there in both uh, the ancient Near East and in Indo-European traditions, Enlightenment theology. But the ancient Near East also had this notion of covenant, which is a very social understanding of religion. And when the Torah is given uh, in the Bible, it is about more or less a social contract, how you're going to relate to one another. And so you can recognize that there's this interior self-realization, but there's also this social responsibility. And these two kinds of theologies you can sort of uh, define and play with and recognize that these still hold two kinds of values in society today. 
we're all challenged to become ourselves, to become the best self we can be, but we also all live within a society and there is such a thing as the social good. And that's incredibly important as well, that concept. And they can be balanced and our Western tradition holds these two elements that we can learn from, enlightenment and covenant. And within both of those, it isn't necessarily that one's good and one's bad. They can both be open and closed. You use those two words uh, throughout your book as well. Can you talk about uh, that? The idea of open and closed relates to apocalyptic and non-apocalyptic. The closed form of these expressions of religion are about controlling. So you want to control the self. You want to control your emotions and control your desires and you're a sinner and you need to repent and there's all this kind of emphasis on defining the problem of the self and in the covenant tradition you get these you basically get a a very strong literalism this is the way the world is and this is how you have to be in it and the world's leading to this end and so again you have this sort of social control the righteousness of the of the nation is based on this kind of uh, defined covenant-like relationship to the religion. And I think uh, these have been very harmful historically, these ways of controlling and shaming and uh, and basically uh, end up isolating religion from relevance in in our modern world because it's kept religion in kind of these medieval uh, structures and and ways of thinking. but the open tradition has always been there, and it's the one you see in Ecclesiastes or you see in the parables, and they have these also these two elements. One where the self is, um, is about becoming and about overcoming, about becoming who we are and overcoming our prejudices. So you can see that certainly in the Good Samaritan parable. The, the Samaritan is the enemy who comes to us and loves us, and it challenges us to overcome our assumptions about those that we might classify as an enemy. Um, and in the, in the covenant tradition, it's about, you see this in Isaiah, it's about recognizing that in the end, this covenant isn't about our special little nation, it's about the world itself. It's about being a light to the nations. It's about the whole world coming to peace. And it is highly inclusive of all the diversity, and in some ways uh, recognizing that all of humanity is intimately related and we become together as nations. So the Bible and the Western tradition uh, has these two elements that are also very positive, very open, very inclusive, and not necessarily about heaven, about earth, about the coming together of all the people of the earth, and about individuals in life now realizing uh, ways to move beyond their innate prejudices. Related to this open and closed, you write also about the role of the theologian, the theologian who is tasked with pushing the edge. For example, I'm getting to the question in your denomination in the United Church of Canada. The atheist minister, Greta Vosper, has, uh, in the process of being defrocked, I suppose. Talk about that situation regarding uh, the role of a theologian. Yeah, I, um, I know Greta. I've known her for 
10 or 15 years, I guess, and I think we consider ourselves friends. We are very similar in many ways and maybe slightly different too. But overall, um, absolutely, I would say she is doing what a theologian does, and that is to take the tradition to the edge of itself and to open it up to new questions and to new ways of being. And any tradition, of course, is tempted to take that situation and to try to close it down and to try to control it and to set up definitions for what can be included and excluded. And I just think it's a mistake of the United Church. I think working as a university chaplain, I can say absolutely that the vast majority of students do not believe in invisible things anymore and look at religion as a system that believes in invisible things. Very much like uh, Daniel Dennett, who you interviewed earlier, uh, describes. That just does not work anymore. And we do need these brave theologians, courageous theologians, to go forward and mark some new territory and explore new territory. I think the church should be welcoming of that and should embrace it. Uh, and then the other element here is, what do you expect? You send a minister to seminary, you get taught biblical criticism, critical theology, history of Christianity. How can you possibly expect somebody to come out of that experience without asking questions, without changing over time, and without uh, questioning historic beliefs that simply no longer work anymore or that do not complement our current understanding of the universe and life? So I regret the situation. I, I'm part of the same church. I, I don't know really what to say about it, but uh, it, it might be a turn of the United Church of Canada, which has been known for, since its birth as a social gospel-centered, open, progressive denomination. It could mark a turn away from that, that tradition out of fear that, that somebody might not believe what... Uh, is in the basis of union, which has these historic uh, creedal claims. Others of us are a bit nervous if the United Church of Canada, Greta herself has said it's the most liberal denomination on the planet. Uh, one might debate that, but nonetheless, if that one uh, goes this route, uh, what's the hope for the rest of us? But um, the uh, one of the things I, I, I did want to talk about is, in fact, one of my favorite parts of your book was your analysis of Paul, uh, Paul in the New Testament, knowing uh, about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, and for Paul, it was no big deal because idols don't exist. It's just meat. But, says Paul, because of the weak who might be upset about eating the meat, uh, the strong uh, shouldn't do it. Um, and, and religious institutions, as you use this example to explain, have followed Paul's advice. And it's been bad advice um, that we kind of cater too much to the, uh, the most dogmatic elements rather than bringing them along. Can you talk more about that? Uh, yes, I actually, I remember writing that part of the book. It, you know, it's funny when you write a book, You, I, at least I find, as you go along, you think it's pretty good, and then you finish and you think it's really lousy, and then after a while you warm up to it again. And that particular section, I remember going through that and thinking it was pretty good because I was able to relate Nietzsche and Nietzsche's critique of re religion as resentment to Paul's description of the weak who seem to resent the strong and 
And Paul's saying to the strong, look, you're liberal, you're open-minded, you understand there's uh, no gods and that meat sacrifice to idols is the same thing as meat sacrifice to nothing, so there's nothing wrong with it. You get it, but they don't. So you're powerful enough to make concessions to the weaker ones. But it's kind of backfired in Christian history because it ended up making resentment the basic drive of Christianity. And that's exactly what Nietzsche talks about uh, later when, when he's writing in the late uh, 19th century. So uh, look at it the other way. What we end up doing is not helping people develop in their humanity, not questioning not challenging, not asking for growth, not developing critical minds. So we not only weaken the weak further, we weaken, we ask the strong to be weak, and we also drive the strong out of the church and end up never having a vibrant community that's growing and changing or capable of growth and change. So Paul's advice was really very poor advice. Uh, I can understand it in the sense that if you're a person of compassion, you can say, okay, I've had this opportunity to have these experiences and somebody else hasn't, so I shouldn't overwhelm this other, you know, and we all have to grow and we all have different experiences. I can understand that compassion. But on the other hand, you can't allow, can't allow these divisions to inhibit the growth of the community. Historically, liberals in the church slowly end up leaving because there's no place for liberal thinking people and that's the tragedy that we saw through the 20th century christianity has become essentially defined as a evangelical fundamentalist values driven family values which is not there in the bibles that's another chapter in the book religion and it's not one that has anything to do with postmodern world, the postmodern world, or with uh, contemporary cosmology or physics or scientific understanding of the world, it's become a kind of a throwback to another era because it's never welcoming, or at least it's, it has trouble welcoming into its communities these figures that question us and make us change. I want to talk to you forever, but our time is up. David Gulston is my guest. His book, God's Human Future, The Struggle to Define Theology Today. David, thanks for this book. Thanks for all your work. Thank you very much, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, I'm John Schock. Be well. 